This is Nomina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health, addictions, and holistic care community to talk about different issues and treatment modalities. Now, guest opinions are their own, and some content may be triggering. With that, today's guest is Dr. Nicole Vienna, a forensic psychologist who is here to talk with us about forensic psychology and the criminal justice system. As many of our regular subscribers know, I lost my oldest daughter in a spree killing a few years ago, and I've been searching to understand the why ever since. Dr. Vienna is here to shed some light on that topic, so let's welcome her. Welcome, Dr. Vienna. I had mentioned a little bit in the opener, um, our subscribers know about my story. And one of the big things in healing was the fact that when I could understand trauma, I suddenly had a lot more compassion and forgiveness for Dustin. So I am super excited about this topic. And uh, maybe we could start by you introducing what is forensic psychology and kind of how it works. Sure. Uh, so forensic psychology, just simply put, is the application of various areas of clinical psychology, such as developmental psychology, child psychology, uh, to the legal arena. You're, it's the intersection of law and psychology. For example, in my world as a forensic evaluator and expert witness, I get retained to do forensic evaluations on defendants going through the criminal court process. Now, some of my colleagues that are forensic psychologists also work in the civil arena, answering questions related to parental fitness and someone's psychological current psychological functioning, past psychological functioning, and their ability maybe to parent, and they're answering different questions in the realm of family law or whatever is in the civil arena. I'm not, I don't do too much work in the civil arena, but in the criminal arena, like I said, I answer questions related to the criminal court process. So my um, referrals usually address issues of like insanity, which is you know, broadly speaking, knowing the difference between right and wrong at the time of your offense. And and if you don't know the difference between right and wrong, it has to be due to a mental disorder. I also address issues of like competency to stand trust, the ability to understand what's going on in the courtroom, the ability to work with your attorney in a rational manner. And I also do a lot of mitigation in high stakes cases, uh, death penalty cases. And I answer whatever question the legal decision maker, whether it's the lawyer or the judge, whatever question they have about the individual. And then I have to incorporate any relevant statutes or other uh, case law that could assist me in answering that question or being mindful when I'm answering that question. So I'm applying my knowledge of psychology, human behavior and brain functioning to that question. And that's usually within the scope of the law. So we have specific statutes, for example, with insanity, it's written in the law. Yeah, we have the same thing here in Canada with not criminally responsible. And um, <laughs> so my sister has a true crime podcast and, and and we talk about it a lot. There's these big cases, if anyone wants to Google them, like the Brantwood Five, the Greyhound bus murders, where the 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 people who have committed these, they're not criminally responsible because of severe mental illness. 
Mm-hmm. Right. It's we have similar type of referral questions that come our way in my practice and, and generally in any criminal court case across the country, they, lawyers can ask for those kind of uh, mental state at the time of the offense evaluations, uh, diminished culpability. In California, we don't really have that. We have something called diminished actuality. It's, it's kind of along the same lines. It's essentially saying, you know, um, maybe the person's mental disorder that they have or had at the time of the offense made them less culpable for their actions, kind of like in the juvenile system here in um, the United States, too. So what techniques do you use? How do you determine this? Well, depending on which referral question is, uh, we will use different techniques. But broadly speaking, like how a forensic psychologist would approach an evaluation, a forensic evaluation, we use multiple data sources to inform our opinion. So I'm typically receiving records beforehand. I'm going to review those records, and those records might consist of medical history, um, DCFS or Child Protective Services. It has different names in different jurisdictions, but if you're involved with the child welfare system, essentially those records, school records, legal records, the discovery on the case, I'm reviewing all of that ahead of time, if possible. That's my approach. And then I'm scheduling the interview with the defendant's either in jail or if they're out of custody, they'll come to my office. Most of my cases are high stakes at this point. So they're largely in a correctional setting, whether it's jail, prison, uh, forensic state hospital. And I will travel to see them. I'll do the interview. The interview usually lasts about, depending on the case, again, it could range anywhere between like one and three hours, maybe four. Again, depending on how old they are and how much history they have that I need. When I'm there, if I need to administer psychological testing, I will, but it's really going to depend on the referral question. For example, if someone has a prior history of a car accident where they hit their head and might have had a TBI, traumatic brain injury, the lawyer might want to know where are their cognitive abilities at today? What's their current cognitive functioning? Um, Is it likely that they had deficient cognitive functioning at the time of the offense? So I have to administer testing. And I would do that at the jail. And that takes various amounts of time. Um, So after I do the interview, then I'm calling family members, collecting collateral information, because what the defendant reports is just one data point. It's just one information source. But again, we're making opinions based on multiple data points and we're interpreting them and weighing them out. So I'm going to call family members if I can and also obtain history from them. And I usually interview about one to two family members per case, just again, depends on the case and how many sources the attorney gave me. After I complete those steps, if there's scoring that needs to be done, that's that's the next step we, we complete in my practice. Any testing we might've administered that needs to be scored. And we put that on the table and we kind of look at that and interpret that data. And then we write a report most of the time in my cases. Um, But before that, we sometimes consult with the attorney if they ask, especially if they have a confidential court order. We will consult with them of kind of where the data is falling at this point. We'll go over like our possible opinions. And sometimes they'll say they don't want to report. They'll say, no, we're good. Thank you for the information. We understand we can use this or we can't use this. And other times they'll say, great, put it in writing, send me a report. And then it goes off to them, to the attorney. 
And if they decide to use it in court, then we always have the possibility of testifying afterwards. You know, the prosecution, if I'm retained on defense, might have more questions. If I'm retained on prosecution, defense might have questions. The judge might have questions. So there's always the possibility of testifying to the contents of the report, essentially what we, what I did in the evaluation with the defendant in open court. And that's, that's the process. Um, something important to remember, in, especially in forensic work, is that there's always the potential that someone might exaggerate symptoms or feign symptoms for secondary gain, or they might even underreport symptoms because they don't want to uh, they're too, they're guarded. They don't want to share maybe about what has happened to them. So they might underreport. but in forensic evaluations, we're always considering whether or not we have to keep an open mind, um, an eye out and assess for the potential exaggeration and feigning, uh, malingering as well. These are all response styles to the evaluation itself or to the testing. And we do that really just by, you know, weighing out the data, looking at what the person's telling us versus what the collaterals are saying, what the records are saying. Sometimes we do administer tests to help facilitate that opinion. It, again, it's just another data point. One test alone will never diagnose anything or give us you know, a final opinion. It's just like one data point. So that's also something I wanted to make sure everyone was aware of um, that we do. Most people kind of think about it as like, oh, you could tell if we're lying. No, we're just looking at how you're like if it's an attorney I'm kind of speaking as if I were speaking to an attorney do you know if my client's lying or not well I don't know that I don't have a crystal ball but I will assess their response style to my testing and to the evaluation I know as a survivor that was one of our big questions when we went through that process is what if he what because we know we knew we knew him uh mm -hmm. and and we knew that yes he had a drug addiction but he he wasn't like I just I could see him faking it <laughs> it terrified me right so that's the concern right that maybe the other if we're working defense the other side might have like the prosecution of course is going to be um carefully reviewing these reports and the evaluation they want to know um how do you know that what they're telling you is the truth I mean at the end of the day I don't know a hundred percent but I can maybe look at what historical information says I can look at how they're presenting versus how they're what they're telling me does it match um talking to collaterals do they have the same kind of information as the collaterals so I mean we do keep that in mind it's a big part of forensic work to assess response style yeah we did a video with Dr. Rad on brain injury and the personality changes that can happen and, and how that oh, wow. can, can lead to, um, it, it can, it, well, it can lead to this type of situation, but you had mentioned trauma when we were talking and I mean, we all know about schizophrenia and all the, the diagnosed mental disorders, but what about trauma? I like to say trauma also can be considered, in a sense, uh, brain injury, especially when you look at it from a treatment lens. When I used to do treatment with trauma survivors, that's how we would explain it to them. Sometimes, for example, if you have PTSD and the incident in question is on repeat and you're having what people consider flashbacks or um, nightmares and intrusive thoughts or intrusive memories, intrusive sensations, um, the memory just of the incident really just has not been filed away appropriately in the brain. The brain it has a file system, and it just might be that you know part of the 
a little a structure, a couple structures in there, like the hippocampus, which is largely responsible for memory, uh, storing into long-term memory. Didn't it didn't file away that that incident appropriately or properly? So treatment, such treatments like body-based bottom-up type treatment like EMDR might facilitate filing that memory away. So we like to explain it as like, there's nothing wrong with you personally. It's, it is considered a brain injury. Okay. If you look at it from that lens now, trauma definitely can impact someone's cognitive and psychological and behavioral behavioral functioning. Here's how that can happen. And you want to think of it on a spectrum because everyone has different reactions to trauma. Some people uh, respond maybe quicker than others to resolve it. Some people don't have as a heightened reaction as others, and it might be the same incident. Everybody's different. We all come with a different set of hardware. So we, uh, just broadly speaking, just know that trauma over and continuous trauma, especially continuous trauma over time, can't like sometimes it's referred to as toxic stress in the literature. Sometimes you might see concepts like um, complex trauma where you have incidents that happen over and over and over again, just all these terrible adverse experiences, right? Car accidents, death of family members, um, rape, you know, those kinds of traumas over and over and over and over throughout the years. The more incidents you have, the more experiences of trauma you have, it really bogs down the brain you know you're you have to think about the hormones that are responding at that time you're getting dumps of adrenaline cortisol um noradrenaline you're getting all kinds of chemicals in your brain releasing to prep you for survival and that's what they're meant to do however if you get those dumps over time like a lot over time consistently it, it's eating away at the functioning of the brain. It's eating away at those structures. It can actually change the structure and function of the brain. So trauma essentially can change the structure and function of the brain. How you respond to things, how you behave, how you think about things. But again, everybody's different in that it's not a one size fits all. So, you know, just because somebody was in a car accident or someone had, was sexually assaulted doesn't necessarily mean that their structure and function functioning of their brain is going to change it might change in a smaller way than others or it might change in a larger way than others and what else is in their history of adverse experiences too right so in a clinical interview the evaluator or the therapist will assess for that and see and make an opinion on the totality of the data so what kinds of things are you seeing then in your practice in terms of the the justice system so for me, I do criminal court work and I am primarily working on high stakes adult and juvenile cases. And sadly, I see the same things that I have when I started in this field. It's almost like we're seeing more of it now. And it's trauma. Again, trauma leads to changes in the way people function psychologically, their behavior, and it's putting them more at risk to be involved in the justice system because those traumas haven't been resolved. I once heard a saying, and I, I wish I could remember who said it because I would love to give credit to this person. And I don't, I think it was just someone in my, my graduate school program, maybe like a professor or 
some researcher maybe, but they said that uh, 99% of the people in the criminal justice system have experienced trauma, but not everybody that experiences trauma ends up in the criminal justice system. And I find that to be a hundred percent true. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and again, for me to understand, um, Dustin was his name to understand his trauma and how this sweet young boy could get to the point where he would kill three people, including his parents. How do you get there? What, what had to happen to you? And, and in understanding that I suddenly had a lot more compassion and I had forgiveness and, mm-hmm. um, am now a bit of an advocate for, you know, these young kids, right? I, that was one of my questions is what can we do as a preventative measure? Right. And I love that you turned your pain into passion. And that's one thing we work with, we work on with survivors in the treatment process is how do you flip the script there? How do you heal? Turning pain into passion, one example. Um, so I, I love that. I appreciate that response. And that leads into what my answer would be to your question. Um, preventative work, oh, kind of leads into the answer. Uh, preventative work, right? Um, there's a plethora of research on adverse childhood experiences, ACEs for short. And it was done by Kaiser and the CDC. I think they collected data through the 90s. Um, they might have started in the 80s, but largely in the 90s, I think when they published shortly thereafter. But they have a, a amazing research available on their website. It is a U.S.-based government agency. It's the Center for Disease Control. And what they've come up with is really engaging um, with your community your and your child. So if you're, it depends on who you're who I'm speaking to, right? So if I'm talking to like a community member and they're like, how do we prevent this? I want to help out my community, right? I would tell them, well, you guys could work on maybe partner with a nonprofit or start a church and set up, you know, workshops for young people of like, here's how to obtain job skills or like, or here's jobs classes, here's uh, mindfulness-based classes, you know, offering other kinds of tools for people to be able to cope with daily life stressors because maybe they're not getting those at home. Now, um, if you're a parent and you're thinking, how can I help my child? You know, it's a little bit of a tougher question because you have a different role with them. But I would say, again, um, attachment is really important. If you can Uh, be mindful of the responses back and forth, you know, modeling good behavior, modeling good coping styles, um, a lot of validation, you know, if they're in pain or having a struggle, showing them how to work through that. You doing the skills yourself, but also teaching them to do it too, and maybe doing it together. Um, You know, a lot of people in the criminal justice system, what I hear about when we talk about their childhood traumas, and some of them might not be typical traumas you think of, like a car accident, plane crash, a rape, a sexual assault, but their trauma might be what we consider like small T's, small traumas. We have big T's and little T's. And sometimes little T's are things such as like, you know, I had a parent that went to prison or I lived in an impoverished neighborhood. We didn't really have the means to buy groceries all the time. Um, My mom was neglectful or my dad was verbally abusive, put me down, you know, 
those kinds of things build up over time. So if, again, if we're mindful about those connections with our children and we're doing the best we can and you're providing some tools and if not seek out tools within the community, that would be really helpful. It all, it all really kind of, what I see is it boils down to that relationship with the family and, and really spending some time there. But I also understand, you know, sometimes families are, mom and dad are both working a lot to make sure that they pay for a roof over your head and food on the table. And that can be difficult, but carving out just that little bit of time, being mindful, uh, providing that validation and checking in and then reaching out and getting resources, get, get those kids involved in community stuff, like activities, keep them busy, those sorts of things. It's, you know, it's really hard to prevent trauma it could happen to anybody, you know, it, it can. I mean, you could be a, a random victim of assault or a car accident, but at least the stuff with the family, the home unit stuff, we can prevent that. I mean, child abuse, especially because that's considered an adverse childhood experience. That's preventable. Yeah. We just need to pro- provide parents with the tools. We just did a video last week on family dynamics and addiction recovery and, oh, and yes. attachment. We talk a lot about attachment theory and, and I know mm-hmm. that it's, uh, it, it changed my life. <laughs> Gave me some really good understanding. Yes. It, it's helpful to put things into context when you look, look through that lens, but it's, I think in the moment, you know, especially as a parent, it might be easier said than done, especially when you have your own outside stressors going on. It, it might be, you might not um, see it readily, or there are other times too, where people have like, they come from what we would consider like good intact homes and they still have trauma that happens to them. I mean, it, it, trauma does not know any bounds. It, does, it, it crosses socioeconomic status. It crosses, you know, anything, everything and anything, race, gender, you name it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Is there anything that you wanted to add in closing? I would say that, I mean, some of what the research does say in conclusion is that there is the potential for post-traumatic growth. I think it's always important to touch on, you know, the fact that trauma may change structures and functioning of our brain, but we can always change it back as well we can always improve that brain health. We can have what we call post-traumatic growth. And that comes by seeking out those resources like therapies, medications, if they're needed and required or recommended by your you know, provider, adjunct services like support groups. You can really, the brain can regrow those connections. It's neuro, called neuroplasticity. It's very possible. So I always like to put that out there for people because if they've experienced, you know, a trauma, it doesn't mean that, you know, you're forever doomed, um, that it's going to change your life. It doesn't, it could change your life in a very positive way as well. So if you need the resources, seek them out. Um, I'm going to send you some that I have for um, children of trauma, I think uh, survivors of childhood trauma uh, support groups. What we know with uh, in the research about people that ha- experience post-traumatic growth is that the ones that do usually have a good support system in place 
before they build that support system. And the ones that don't usually take longer to achieve that post-traumatic growth, you know, if at all. So having a support system is huge. And maybe that's something also to uh, be mindful of when you're raising your children of like also helping them build their support system as well. Yeah. Well, I will say that from my own personal experience, so it wasn't just the fact that my daughter was killed. He killed his parents. He stabbed the dogs. And so I ended up fostering his dog. And then his land or my daughter's landlord was trying to extort me. And then we lost my stepbrother. It was just bam, 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 bam. So in, in all honesty, I was a mess for about a year and a half, but I got the help. I, um, you know, and I can honestly say I'm in a better place now than I was before that healing is possible. And that's, I mean, I'm very open on this channel about, about what worked for me, what didn't, but all of the options. So I'm getting emotional. Healing is possible and it is possible to get to a better place than you were before. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to link, uh, I'm going to link that other video that we did with Dr. Rad. Cause that was pretty cool. And my sister's podcast, just cause she's my sister <laughs> and I'm going to link all of your contact information as well. And, and your bio in the description and the show notes on the podcast. So again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's just, it, I think for so many of us, the why is so important to understand. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you for having me. It was a great time.